Hey guys, welcome to the Swerve Church Podcast. My name is Danny, the lead pastor. I pray that the message that you're about to hear is encouraging, uplifting, and honestly challenging as well. I want to invite you to join us in person Sundays at 11 a.m. at the Swerve Hub at 239 Stanhope Street, or catch church online at 11 a.m. on our YouTube or Facebook page. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I pray that you're blessed by today's message and that it helps draw you closer to Jesus. Without a shadow of a doubt, the single most notorious and controversial figure of all of human history is Jesus, a carpenter from a middle-of-nowhere town called Nazareth who flipped the world upside down. His life on earth was cut short at the young age of 33. His public ministry uh, lasted only about three and a half years, and yet no figure in human history has brought more controversy than Jesus. There's just something about the name of Jesus. You can bring up spirituality, you can bring up faith, you can bring up practices, but the moment that you mention Jesus, the hairs on the back of people's necks stick up, veins pop out, countenances change, defenses pick up, and barriers are put down. We've been in a series called Doubting God, and as a key passage for this series, we've been looking at the passage at the tail end of the Gospel of Matthew, sandwiched between the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrected Jesus, giving what we call the Great Commission to the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. We read this fascinating statement. The disciples are with the resurrected Jesus at a mountain in the region of Galilee. And it was at the very same region where the disciples had seen so much of Jesus' ministry and miracles take place. They heard so many of His teachings within that very same vicinity. And it is here where the resurrected Jesus appears to them. And we read this. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped, but some doubted. The disciples are talking to the resurrected Jesus. They see and hear Him right before them. They are in a posture of worship. And even with all the evidence, even with the Savior of the world standing before their eyes, some of them still have an inkling of doubt. Some of them are still struggling. Maybe you came here today and you share in the sentiment of the disciples. And perhaps that the source of your doubt is not necessarily doubting God. But maybe it's doubting this Jesus guy. Like maybe you think we're making too much of this guy. Like maybe there's an overemphasis. Maybe you went to a college where a professor of yours rocked your worldview saying that you can't trust the Bible because it's full of flaws. And maybe they told you that Jesus was made up by religious people to try and to control you or to manipulate society. Maybe you have some friends who've told you that Jesus and Christianity is just one of the many roads that lead to inner peace and tranquility and Zen. That all religions are basically the same thing and have the same end goal in mind. Maybe you've read the words of Jesus and you've thought to yourself, how could he be so exclusive and narrow-minded? Didn't he know that we're supposed to be tolerant? Didn't he know we're supposed to be accepting? For some people, their doubts don't stem from God per se, but maybe the doubts are a little bit more connected to Jesus. So what I want to do today is look at God's Word and give you some reasons to consider Jesus. We want to look at His life and His words and encourage you to draw a conclusion from how He lived and what He said. Here's the first consideration. Number one, consider the ministry of Jesus. 
Most scholars believe Jesus' ministry to be at about three years or so. And in that short span of time, he was able to flip the world upside down. And his primary message was the kingdom of God drawing near, and he gave glimpses of it through his ministry. If you think Jesus is controversial today in the 21st century, it doesn't take more than a glance at the Gospels to know that he was equally controversial during his own time period as well. And as we examined last week, Jesus was quite hard on the religious people, calling out their hypocrisy. He was exceptionally gracious to the down and outs, the low down and dirty, the notorious and infamous. He extended grace to them. He showed those guys mercy. And here's an example of the reputation that Jesus had, in particular amongst the religious elite of his day. And this event happened early on in his ministry when Jesus was assembling a team of misfits who would eventually become his disciples and help him flip the world upside down. And among them was one who was considered a traitor by his Jewish counterparts. His name was Matthew, and he was a tax collector. And everyone knew that tax collectors were bad news. Not only were they collecting taxes for the oppressive Roman government, but many of them charged a little extra to fill their own pockets as well. Yet Jesus befriends one of these men. And not only does he befriend them, but he invites him to be a part of his inner circle. And overwhelmed with this gesture, Matthew invites his fellow tax-collecting buddies to come over and to connect with Jesus and share a meal. And so here is Jesus, surrounded by these scheming sinners, sitting around a table, sharing a meal. And then we read this in Mark's Gospel. Check this out. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The accusation here that we just read is clear. If Jesus is such a great rabbi, and if he's such a great communicator and a teacher, and if he's such a man of God, then what is he doing with a group of rebels? And this was the vast majority of Jesus' ministry. In a society that if you were physically incapacitated, they thought it was because of a sin that you or your parents committed. In other words, that you deserved it, that you were impure and unqualified. Yet it was those very people that Jesus would hold and heal and herald the good news of the kingdom of God too. He would address, befriend, and accept them. And so when the Pharisees accused Jesus of eating with these notorious sinners, here's what Jesus replied. When Jesus heard this, he told them, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. When you consider Jesus, consider his ministry, the people that he served, were those who others rejected. It wasn't the perfect religious got it all together people. It was the outcast, the rejects, the sinners, the imperfect, those who acknowledged their need for him. The next consideration, number two, you can write this down, is to consider the claims of Jesus. Jesus, throughout his ministry, made some bold claims about himself. Some people, both religious and secular alike, would make the claim that Jesus never called himself God. That Jesus was simply a great teacher, a great prophet, a, a phenomenal rabbi, a gifted communicator and storyteller. That Jesus was simply a man and he never made any claims to contradict such. And as a devout Jewish man himself, there's no way that Jesus would ever make the claim to be God. However, what I think is absolutely clear is that Jesus did indeed not only claim to be God, but in fact he proved it as well. While some in our day might argue the fact of his claims, it was crystal clear to the religious of Jesus' day. The Gospel of Matthew documents an interaction that took place between Jesus, a paralyzed man, and a religious crowd. 
A word is spreading throughout the region of this gifted traveling preacher who supposedly is opening blind eyes and opening deaf ears. So on this occasion, they bring a paralytic to him. And this is what happens. Check it out. So he got into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Just then, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. And at this, some of the scribes said to themselves, He's blaspheming. When Jesus sees the faith of the friends and the paralytic, he looks into the eyes of the bedridden man. And then he says these words right here. Listen carefully. He says, Your sins are forgiven. And the immediate response and outcry of the scribes in the crowd is blasphemy, blasphemy. And you know what? Their accusation would be true if Jesus was not who he claimed to be, God in human flesh. This accusation was no small matter. In fact, it's what would ultimately lead to Jesus being hung on a cross. You see, Jesus didn't claim of himself to be a good teacher, prophet, rabbi, or communicator. Jesus didn't see himself as merely a miracle worker. Jesus made what would have been absolutely preposterous claims of himself to be God in human flesh. And like I mentioned, his claims were backed up by his actions. In the same passage, after forgiving the sins of the paralytic, and after the outcries of blasphemy from the religious leaders, check out what happens next. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, Get up, take your stretcher and go home. So he got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. Jesus gives proof to the religious leaders and those who were present. He shows them that his claim over the authority to forgive sin is valid and does so by using the mere words, using these mere words to the paralyzed man and the bedridden man gets up and he carries his bed out the door. When you look at the life of Jesus and when you examine his claims, recognize that his claims were not to be a great teacher, a rabbi, or a scholar. His claims were to be God in human flesh who would live a perfect and sinless life and die on behalf of his creation to atone for their sin. If you're confused about it, recognize that the scribes and the Pharisees were not confused. They were very clear on Jesus' claims, which is why they cried out blasphemy and why they ultimately got him murdered. Here's the third consideration. You can write this down in your notes, number three, and that is to consider the resurrection of Jesus. We spoke about this some on Easter Sunday as one of the evidences for our faith. And that is the fact that Jesus said he would resurrect after three days, and he did. The tomb is empty. The enemy was defeated. Christ's atoning work on the cross was finished. We have this well documented for us throughout the New Testament. For example, in one such instance, after Jesus had already ascended into heaven, Peter and John are walking in the freshly poured out power of the Spirit, and they come across a man who was lame from birth. And right there, before everyone who is entering and entering the temple, they command the lame man, they look at him, and they say, in the name of Jesus, to get up and walk. And he does. And this draws a crowd as people were used to walking this past lame beggar, asking for money at the entrance to the temple. And now they see him up and walking. And Peter and John seize the opportunity to share the gospel and within the gospel proclamation, they make this claim. Acts chapter 3, verse 15. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. 
They claim that they are witnesses to this fact. They saw the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes. And this message, by the way, comes at no personal benefit to them. There's no clout that comes from this claim. There's no money. There's no fame. There's no notoriety. This claim actually comes to their detriment. The disciples, like their Savior, would also come under extreme scrutiny and persecution. And eventually the vast majority of them would all, like Jesus, be martyred for their faith. What would possess some hillbilly, middle-of-nowhere, cowardly, misfit group of fishermen, tax collectors, and zealots hold so tightly to a message that would eventually come at the cost of their own lives? Maybe they actually saw the empty tomb and they encountered the risen Christ. Consider the resurrection of Jesus. The empty tomb has huge ramifications for what we believe and how we lead our lives. Because if the tomb is empty, Jesus is who He claimed to be. And if He is who He claimed to be, then He is worthy of our surrender, our worship, and our all. The last consideration, number four, is this. Write this down. And that is to consider the message of Jesus. What was Jesus' essential mission about Himself? What did His claims lead you to believe about Him? What did His message require as a response from those He shared this message with? Like I mentioned mentioned earlier, some claim that Jesus was just a prophet, a teacher, a rabbi, a miracle worker. But was this what Jesus claimed of himself? Was at the core of Jesus' message to follow him because of his skill as a communicator, his wisdom as a teacher, his compassion as a miracle worker, his knowledge of the Torah and the Tanakh? If you were to read the words of Jesus in the New Testament at face value, what conclusion would you draw? Would you also conclude that he was simply those things? I think what you'll find is that Jesus made both some of the most exclusive and inclusive claims. For example, consider the conversation that Jesus had with a religious leader named Nicodemus under the cover of night. Nicodemus was an undercover seeker, but his reputation was on the line. So much was at stake for him. But yet he was under the impression that perhaps there was more to this Jesus guy than a gifted preacher and rabbi. And so he meets with Jesus under the cover of night. And Jesus lovingly meets with him and shares some of the most well-known words in the Bible. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, the Apostle John records for us this private conversation for us to be able to see the inclusivity of the claims of Jesus. It says this, For God so loved the world in this way that He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Jesus' message was a radically inclusive message. He said that God sent His Son, Jesus, for everyone. He sent His Son to save the world. That that means that salvation is available for everyone and anyone. The, The means of salvation is through Christ. And to experience salvation, you can be of any nation or tribe. To experience salvation, you can be of any language, ethnicity, background, or socioeconomic status. The message of Christ is absolutely inclusive, and it is also absolutely exclusive. You see, Jesus would also make the claim later on in the same Gospel of John. He said this, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. While the message is for everyone and anyone who believes, it is also only for those who believe in Christ. There is only one mediator between God and man. It's the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus said that He was the way, the truth, the life, that no one enters the presence of God and no one enters heaven. No one experiences salvation except through Him. 
There are not multiple paths to heaven. Not all roads lead to heaven. Not all religions make the same claim. The claim of one religion contradicts the claim of another, so it's impossible for all faiths to lead to the same place. So the message of Jesus is both the most inclusive and exclusive message. It is one of mercy and forgiveness and grace and salvation for everyone and anyone. And it is for everyone and anyone who accepts the means of salvation through Jesus. And here's what God did. The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. That we were heading for destruction because of our sin. But God who is rich in mercy could not stand to see heaven without us. He refused an eternity without us, which causes me to echo the words of the psalmist, God, what is man that you are mindful of him? So God does the unthinkable and the unimaginable. God puts on human flesh. The Creator enters His creation in the form of an infant. The God of the universe entered in order to redeem His creation back to Himself. No one can enter the presence of God unless they are blameless. So Jesus led His life in a way that was blameless. He lived a life resisting sin in its submission to the Father. And this life of sinlessness is perfect and perfection, allowing Him to be once and for all the sacrifice for our sin. And because there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, Jesus was led to the cross and He died a criminal's death. Every nail, lash, and beating showing us the extent of the punishment owed us for our sin. Until at last Jesus utters the words, It is finished, and He hangs His head and He dies. He died because the wages of our sin is death. And on that cross, though without any blame or sin of his own, he absorbed the wrath of God for us. They took his body and placed it in a tomb, but not even the grave can withstand the full weight of God's love for us. Three days later, Jesus conquered Satan's sin and death, and he rose from the grave so that all who would look to him and call on the name of Jesus and put their faith in the finished work of the cross can have forgiveness of sin and new life and the promise of eternity. Anyone who looks to the cross, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus, anyone who puts their faith not in their own efforts or in their own religiosity, but in Jesus can be saved. And if you haven't done this yet, consider Jesus. Consider the ministry of Jesus. He came showing the kingdom of God on earth through miracles, signs, and wonders. Consider the claims of Jesus, not to be a good teacher, a prophet, a rabbi, but to be the Son of God, God in human flesh, the Messiah capable of forgiving sins. Consider the resurrection of Jesus. The tomb is empty. The the cross has been defeated. The grip of Satan and sin has been loosened. Consider the message of Jesus, that He is the way, the truth, the life, and that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus can and will be saved. Consider Jesus. Consider how much He loves you. Consider the decision that lies before you today. Will you put your faith in Him today? Salvation is of the Lord's, and salvation is available to you today. Lord, I pray for those here today that don't necessarily doubt God, but their doubts lie in the person and work of Jesus. Reveal to them the true Jesus, not some counterfeit, but the true Jesus of the Scriptures. Help us examine the ministry, the claims, the resurrection, and the message of Jesus. I pray that our investigation of these things would lead us to the truth. Thank you, Jesus, for being the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that salvation is available for everyone and anyone. Thank you for paying the penalty for my sin in my place. Lord, we trust you. We worship you. Help us to live for you, Lord. And for those that are on the fence of their faith, Holy Spirit, draw them closer to you and help them see 
Help them consider Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Guys, I truly pray and hope that you were challenged and encouraged by today's message. I want to take a second to invite you to join us in person. We're gathering this Sunday at 11 a.m. at the Swerve Hub, 239 Stanhope Street, right here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And come on over, join us, come to the Swerve Hub. Let's worship together. Let's get together. Let's worship God together. Let's learn and grow together. Let's fellowship together. Why don't you come on out and join us in person this Sunday?